Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Good morning, everybody. Really glad that you're joining us here this morning. And a huge hello to the many of you watching and listening online wherever you are today. If you've got a Bible, please turn to the book of James. We're still in the middle of the series called A Normal Christian Life. And it's life-changing when you really dive into the Word of God and let it form you. All week long, I've been spending basically, uh, well, I've been spending my whole week reading five verses Five verses, and as I read them again and, and again and again, I was struck because what James is about to communicate to us, what the Spirit of God is about to say to us as a community, whether you're a brand new seeker or you're a brand new Christian or you're not seeking at all or you've been a Christian for decades, what God is about to say to us is impossible. It is impossible. When I first read this, five simple words, it seemed utopian. And yet, though I was reminded by the Spirit of God and by Scripture itself that God does not give us things that we cannot accomplish, yet He also reminds us that it takes an infusion from heaven to accomplish things laid out in Scripture. I come to you this morning and I admit my inadequacy. I read these five verses and I said to God all week, what you are asking this church to look like and be in five verses is impossible. I I can't do it, God. I cannot save people's marriages. I cannot uh, make people want the things of God. I can't make myself or this church sacrifice so seriously that people become Christians. I can't convince people to become Christians. I, I, I don't have this ability. God reminded me again that he said exactly What I'm about to unveil to this church, as I have done to many other churches throughout time, is this. I have a standard you are called to. And when you see the standard and it is too high and too complex, then you turn to me and I will answer if you ask. What James is about to do here is outline what this church must be, but also outlines the two things that can cause death in any community. We're going to start in James chapter 3, halfway through in 13. See, James is about to talk to us about one word, wisdom. Wisdom. It's a word thrown around a lot, and to be honest with you, when I hang out with people and we talk about it, most people, including myself half the time, don't even know what it means. It's almost become a churchy word. So here's the question as we start together as a family. What is wisdom? I mean, all of Scripture says we need to desire wisdom. And in ancient times, if you read any ancient text, Christian or otherwise, uh, great leaders wanted wisdom above anything else, more than money or power or prestige. But the question is, well, what in the world is it and why is it so highly prized? Well, the answer is this. Wisdom is the one thing, listen, that changes everything else. It affects everything else. It actually leads and directs everything else in our life. Wisdom is not just knowing about things. That is the mistake in the modern church. It is not factual knowledge, but it is the ability to apply God's truth in everyday life. Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon are all called the wisdom books because they focus on faith in life. Wisdom is simply working out our faith in the everyday of our life. It refers to a person's whole way of life. It is seeing God's merciful love towards us spill over to ourselves and also to our neighbor from a biblical perspective. The source of wisdom 
Pure wisdom, original wisdom, true wisdom is God himself. Listen to these words in Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes understanding. Or here's another one, Psalm eleven ten. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have a good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Even a few weeks ago, as we started this series, uh, Jesus basically says through his half-brother, James, Look, if you do not know how to live a normal Christian life, if you're confused about what to do, all you must do, he says, is ask. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, how to live a basic normal Christian life, he or she should ask God. The wisest man who ever lived was Solomon, right? And when God came to him as a young king and said, I will give you anything you want. Think about that. God who owns all things, who has all power and might, comes to a young king and says, it's your day, baby. Anything you want. What do you want? He looks at God and says, well, there's one thing. Because he already knew that the one thing that affects all others is wisdom. 1 Kings 3 says, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Well, the Lord, it says, was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, listen, and not for long life, and not for wealth for yourself, and have not asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and and discerning heart. Chapter 4 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and great insight and a breath of understanding that was measureless, uh, greater than the sand on the seashore. See, wisdom inspires worldview. It gives action. It is the heartbeat. It is the executive function of every person's way of life. And James is about to show us that within our human family, no matter money or power or education or race or background, there are only two types of wisdom that have existed, that do exist, and will exist until Jesus' return. Wisdom that comes from heaven and wisdom that comes from hell. There is no in-between. No matter what you think or who you are or how educated you are, God says there's two types of wisdom. James today begins with a challenge for us. Really, a summary of chapter 1, 2, and 3 summed up here in these five verses. From dealing with suffering to saying no to evil and yes to God to not letting economics contaminate our community through favoritism to showing real faith expressed through real works to being honest about the dangers of the tongue and the need for God's help. James now here, in direct and indirect ways, he pushes us, he prods us again to the foundation for this amazing truth that defines this normal Christian life. Listen to these words from Scripture. James 3.13, who? Who is wise among you? Who has understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. Wisdom, like faith, is vital to the normal Christian life. And wisdom and faith, he says, always must be seen. As our family small group leaders say, the goal or shape of our Christian walk is to show our invisible faith visibly. Are you wise, James asks every one of us? Well, the answer will be either yes. Yes, I am wise, and thus the implication is I know the author of wisdom, or no, no, I'm not wise, so I don't know the author of wisdom, or here's the scary one, but the common one among us. Yes, 
but, which shows that we have a divided loyalty, which must be addressed very quickly among us. For when we embrace Jesus, we don't just get to have him as Savior. He also is Lord. True wisdom, one's way of life, our attitude, the shape of Christian existence, maybe another word is discipleship, is seen by one thing, James says. It is seen by action. You you don't get relationship with God through Jesus by being good or by what you do. But once you've embraced Jesus' grace alone and his mercy alone, and you have said yes to him as Savior and Lord, then he says that that transformed life must be expressed in wisdom, and wisdom produces deeds. And so if you have wisdom you, and you have the understanding that informs and grounds that wisdom, it will always be shown by a transformed good life through works of righteousness. I mean, what did James say in the very first chapter? One of the most challenging statements to any gathering of Christians. James 1.17. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, it's one thing. It's dead. It's useless. It's, it's garbage. Show me your faith without deeds. But then he says, but I will show you my faith by what I do. I put my money where my mouth is. But James here in chapter 3 takes us now one step further. Not only must works, a transformed life, be present in a very dark, very scary world, but these deeds must be done in a certain attitude. They need to be done in humility. How many of us have seen Christians? How many of us have done this? Where we thought we were being godly and good, doing deeds of righteousness, but we were jerks when we did it. He comes and says, we must have a transformed life. And as we do these deeds of righteousness, they need to be done in meekness, in gentleness. You see, this word captures the essence of trust in God rather than self-oriented power. Humility, by the way, is not weakness. Rather, it is strength under control. It's never bitter. It is never self-seeking, never self-promoting, and it is never, ever vengeful. I mean, Jesus talked about it all the time, right? Matthew 11, what does Jesus say about himself? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Anyone thinking here that Jesus was weak? Anyone? No. He had strength. He is God under control. To some of you today joining us or watching online who have not embraced Jesus yet, Look at this verse. Jesus comes and offers you the one thing the world dies for all the time. Genuine rest for your soul. He comes and says, meet me. I will give you something that the world, money, sex, power, education can never give you. Genuine rest between you and God and you and others. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. Humility, one wrote, involves a healthy understanding of our own unworthiness, healthy, that is, before God, and a corresponding humility of, or a lack of pride in dealing with other people. Well, just after he utters this challenge, he gets real honest about the church, good and really bad. There are some that think they are Christians, but their actions deny any evidence of Jesus' presence. Yet he knows all of us that have that relationship already. All of us who have met Jesus will be tempted to go back to what we have been saved from, to act like heaven never really moved into our hearts. And so now he does this. 
James, for us, quickly catalogs. He lists vices, the actions, the places, even in our church, where sin has actually encroached in. These two actions will kill Christian community. They will kill Christian life, and they will always, always, always kill our Christian witness. Verse 14, if you harbor bitter envy or selfish ambition in your hearts, listen, don't boast about it, and don't deny the truth. The word harbor struck me this week. We, we use that in English all the time. This is what it means in the dictionary. Uh, it's a part of a body of water near a coast where ships can anchor safely, right? Any place, actually, that's safe or sheltered. Here's another definition. To continue to think privately about an emotion for a very long time. Or, here's the last one, to provide somebody with shelter or sanctuary. Let it sink, sink in. James says to us as followers, are you giving shelter? Are you giving sanctuary? Are you giving safety over an extended period? Are you defending? Are you guarding in your mind and in your thoughts and in your conversations? Bitter envy or selfish ambition. These are landmines that will maim a church, kill a Christian life, and explode the family of God. Bitter envy can be translated bitter jealousy. It's always pointed, right? It's all sharp, prickly, pungent, harsh, cutting, destructive, and it is always self-seeking. As James has already said, harsh, bitter words can come from our mouth. And just like speech, so the same with jealousy. Bitterness will spill over a broken levee, and that destructive flood will be marked by distrust among us. Suspicion, protectiveness, resentment, uh, and covetedness. I mean, really, what James is saying to us this morning is this. Don't break the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's husband or wife, manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. To covet, to be genuinely jealous is going after what we cannot have. And that is what our neighbor either cannot give up or is not willing to give up. He says not only will that cause such damage among us, he says there's something even more gross among us. It's selfish ambition. The word in Greek originally was used to define greedy politicians or to talk about narrow partisan zeal. The love for fractions, the love for a good fight among us, mere partisanship, any work done for personal gain, one's own glory, pride and profit, you know, pleasure, personal interest, ambition. James comes to us and says, don't boast about it. Don't be so excited that you're acting like a jerk. Don't think that upstairs is cheering you on because you think you're defending the truth. The way you're defending truth violates the truth. One wrote, James's readers may have been priding themselves in the partisan defense of truth, a defense that was to their own advantage, of course, and advancement. And through such bitter partisan defense, they were really beginning to deny the truth they were attempting to defend. Now, I openly admit before you that I have committed this sin many times in my past, and I also, as senior pastor in the last three and a half years, have been at the end of this attitude many, many, many times. When a person has a theological difference than you, and when they rise them up to a primary issue, though it really is secondary and causes division, and they use the God card to justify it, it's one thing, friends, it's sin. God is with me, don't you get it? Not with you. You don't fully get God's truth. You're not being faithful. 
when the conversation is expressed by anger, when arrogant tones on honest issues of disagreement are used, James says to us, don't boast the truth, even if you're right, is being tainted by your lack of humility. Almost all church splits are found right here. James isn't done. He says, you know what? You end up denying the truth. See, we cannot afford to do this. He's not talking about denying salvation. He is saying again that wisdom is the call to live a godly life. And when you choose to embrace these things, you begin to violate what's coming out of your mouth because your actions don't match up. He says, don't deny the truth. Don't go here, church. Don't deny what God has done in you, your words and your life. Please, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the community, for those who are genuinely searching, put it away. James calls these two poisonous fruits what they are. They're ungodly. He carefully now chooses three adjectives that take us or one person into a deeper, more dangerous, ungodly place. He says, actually, there are three sources of this wisdom, and it's scary. Verse 15, such wisdom, wisdom does not come down from heaven. It's earthly, friends. It's unspiritual. And oh, oh, by the way, let me throw this one in too. It's from the demonic. Such wisdom, this so-called way of living, does not come from heaven. It does not come from the nature of God. It is not found in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who is our model and master. It is not found in the works or the gifts or the fruits or the nature of the third person of the most blessed trinity, the Holy Spirit. Its source comes from the old ancient enemies of all of us, the world, the flesh, and the demonic. He says, you know that type of wisdom? It's transitory, it's earthly, it's weak, it's imperfect. It has no time for God's lordship, has no time for the things of God. You know, prayer, communion, church, accountability, real relationships, preaching, evangelism, loving the poor, grace and truth, truth and grace. No, no, there's, there's no place to reach the lost here, John. Don't you know the song says it's all about me? Jealousy and selfish ambition. The so-called wisdom is also unspiritual. The word derived from the soul, meaning where human feelings, listen closely, reign supreme. It's where our feelings, our desires, our appetites, our impulses, our standards are more important than God's holy word. Yeah, John, listen, I know what God says, but I'm just going to do the opposite. I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm not going to give as God has asked me. I'm not going to serve. No, I'm not going to be charitable. No, I don't want to do peace. I'm going to keep sleeping around. I don't care. Not your will, my will, God. And the last one he says is it's demonic. I mean, the true source of all lies, right? The kingdom of darkness, ungodly wisdom that even inspires the church is inspired by demons and shared by demons. They love evil thoughts. They love that they lead to ungodly action. They encourage both non-Christian and Christian to join in their hostility against God through actions done amongst us in relationship, which ends not with the will of our father, but actually ends up being the will of another father, the father of lies. I mean, what was the original lie in the Garden of Eden, right? The original lie was Satan comes to Eve and says, give me a break. God's afraid of you, Eve. Don't you know that if you just take that fruit and you take it, you will will be like God. You will know good and evil. He is petrified of you. He is a liar. Eve takes it and gives to Adam. Adam takes it. And they buy into the lie that has haunted us as human beings ever since that we are God. He says that wisdom, which at its root is selfish ambition and jealousy, that is earthly. 
It is unspiritual. It is demonic. It is haunting. And it is still with us, even among us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. One person wrote this, thinking about its ramifications culturally. To the world's philosophers, this lie manifests itself this way. Religion in general, they say, and biblical Christianity specifically are just relics of a superstitious pre-scientific age that relied on fantasy to explain what has not just yet been discovered by, ready, man's own effort. You're God. Don't worry about it. But there's another side to the lie, too. Much of our culture isn't just scientific anymore. It's scientific and spiritual or non-rational, and so it takes a different form. It doesn't reduce the supernatural anymore to fantasy. No, no. It encourages the engagement in the supernatural on all levels. It says, you know, engage in supernatural power, but it doesn't need to come from God. Don't worry about it. Go play with the occult and the New Age and other faiths. Get as many self-help books as you can that say it's really all in you. You know, go and Skype with your friends about this. You know, these practices are important. Really, at the end of the day, right, it's all the same. It doesn't matter what you plug your plug into to get the supernatural experience. It's just about the experience. James comes and says, these things have their roots in places you don't want to touch and you don't want to go. They never produce and they never replicate and never move any of us to be like Jesus, to reflect heaven, to see his kingdom come as will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, James says, you want to explain every church split? It's right here. Every time things go wrong in a small group, it's right here. Everything that goes bizarro land in C4, well, it's right here. It's egocentric, selfish attitudes that lead to chaos, nurtured by, well, jealousy and rivalry. Nothing's new under the sun. He says in verse 16, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice of every kind. The word disorder, does this relate to anyone? It means restless, unsettled, uprising, revolution, and anarchy. James says, Where you find these beginning to grow in a church... Anger, bitterness, resentment, lawsuits, unbiblical divorce, racial, ethnic, and economic divisions will begin to show themselves, and there will be an absence of love. Well, with that very exciting, bleak, almost too honest, uncomfortable picture, James then now turns back to heaven, thank God, and says, you know what? That's unholy wisdom. But there is something from God, something that is from the Spirit of God. There are works that evidence His presence. Uh, and as you're about to see, and he, he shows us, they absolutely resist the other type. He says, but wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. It's peace-loving. It's considerate, submissive, full of mercy. It has good fruit. It's impartial. And, oh, oh by the way, it's sincere. The wisdom that comes from heaven, first of all, is pure. You know, I learned this week that the word pure was used by ancient Greeks as a word of non-religious defilement. When someone was about to go into a temple to meet their God, they were checked out. And if they were called pure, then the relationship was already there and they could go into the presence of the divine. This is important. He says, it is pure, leading us to understand that the relationship has to be present first before we get this wisdom. And then he says, once you have this relationship with Jesus, here is the evidence that begins to start coming out. Number one, peace-loving. Not insisting on having the rights all the time. Yielding, gentle, kind, tolerant, and obedient. People like this choose not to let selfishness rule the day. They choose not to perpetuate conflict in a community. They're considerate. 
They're fair. They're courteous. Here's something. They're even willing to put up with suffering, knowing, as Jesus taught in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. It's not all about my rights in a Christian community. It says the wisdom is submissive, teachable, not stubborn, compliant. But then he goes a step farther, which is uncomfortable for many of us. He says, by the way, this wisdom from the Spirit of God, a normal Christian life, it's full of mercy. Mercy, by the way, isn't pity. Pity can be an emotion that you just hang out with. It's actually compassion that drives you to action. The first way to have mercy is the most difficult among us. It's to actually forgive people, to not hold things against people. It does not mean forgetting, but it is a choice where you never use that against a person ever again. As God has had mercy on us, so he says have mercy on others. I mean, what did Jesus say again? Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Or what's in the Lord's prayer? Forgive us our debts, O Lord, as we forgive those. Or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. But it's not just that. This mercy also is a driving force to help the poor and the widow and the orphan. That's why James said in 127, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted from the world. He says, you know what? You need to be full of mercy. And also, you need to have fruit. What Paul said came from the Spirit, James says wisdom produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says there's two other things I want to remind you of. Uh, this wisdom is impartial. It has no time for prejudice. It treats everyone the same. No favoritism. No issues with gender, money, or racial, or education. That is removed in Christian community. And it is, and here's a very important thing for us, it is sincere. It is unwavering. It knows the truth. It will be faithful to the truth of God. And it will hold out even when the culture says the opposite. We will declare that Jesus is the only way to heaven, not because we're arrogant, but because he claimed it. We will say that sexuality is defined by Scripture and not the opposite. It is when we take the Word of God and say, this will mold us, we will not mold this. Truth is found in wisdom, and wisdom is sincere. And this is how James ends. Peacemakers, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness The outcome of genuine wisdom in a church community is that people are so transformed, they end up being peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker or not? James says wisdom is either found here or it is not. As I struggled this whole week, you can see why now. Because James comes to us and says, well, there's two fruits that need to be eradicated, and there's seven qualities that need to be found in a church community And I looked at those and went, well, God, you better do something. Because this isn't natural for me, and I know most of my friends here, and it's not natural for them. James says wisdom from above is the very thing that forms the community, and wisdom from below is the thing that explodes the community. What is the Lord saying to us today? What is the Lord saying to you, watching or listening? Let me say a few things. For you who aren't Christians yet, You may have the title Christian, but you're not one yet. Is there any evidence of heaven's wisdom in your life? Honestly. Is there any evidence that you're a follower of Jesus? I'm not talking about losing salvation. Like I said a few weeks ago, once you meet Jesus, you're not strong enough to kick him out of his own house. Don't worry about that. The question being asked here is, were you ever a Christian in the first place for real? Is there any evidence of godly wisdom? Are you only marked by lower wisdom? 
That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself to see whether you're even in the faith, to test yourself. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Are you not sure? Are you the person who says, yes, I do the church thing, but I don't think I've ever embraced him. I don't really see that wisdom in my life. Then call out to him and say, today is the day. Save me. Let my faith be so real. I am transformed and changed. I I desire to see this in my life. I accept you as Savior and Lord. I turn from sin. I desire to be holy. I ask for the wisdom of heaven, and I wish and I ask you, God, now in Jesus' name to remove the wisdom of hell. I want evidence. And let that evidence be so clear that I will want to serve others even though I don't like. Some of you have been in church for years and you've never really met the one we worship here. Some of you have been Christians in name or in ethnicity or background, but you have never come to the place where you've said, Jesus, come get me. The evidence is found in your life. Jesus used to teach and still does by his Spirit. A tree will only produce the fruit that it's made to. If your evidence is not heavenly wisdom, there is a chance you've never met him. Yet for us who have met him, I ask you this, what are we called to repent of? And what are we called to pray for over our community? Even all of us as Christians struggle with lower wisdom, right? We all face materialism. We want things. We all want attention, even fame. We desire greed, power, and status. We're careless, let's be honest, about other people, especially those we don't know. Our culture loves temptation, and we live right there. And self-protection is motivated by fear. Aggression is seen in many of us because of envy and pride. And, of course, one of the most dangerous things in any church is assumption. We don't really bother to find out what's really going on, so we make judgment calls on superficial grounds and in the end, end up doing lower wisdom. So here's the question God gives us as a community. Are you giving shelter? Are you giving sanctuary? Are you giving safety? Are you defending? Are you guarding in your mind, in your thoughts, in your conversations, bitter envy or selfish ambition? Honestly, is that you? Because if it is, it affects all of us as a family. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do right now. I'm going to ask you to pray to break it. Close your eyes and pray this. Lord Jesus Christ, if this you pray it, Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this anymore. Forgive me, Lord. Break it now in Jesus' name. I admit that I've become bitter. I am full of jealousy or selfish ambition. I pray now, Lord, that you would transform me, and I know you're the only one who can do it. Come in the name of Jesus and remove earthly wisdom, unspiritual wisdom, and demonic wisdom from my life. In Jesus' name. And while your heads are bowed, let's pray something else. Jesus asks our community to reflect these very amazing attributes of wisdom, but I admit to you freely, this is not going to happen without a divine intervention from heaven. This wisdom is heavenly. And so if you are willing, and only if you're willing, pray this prayer. This is one you don't nod off. Actually pray this. God, hear our prayer. We want to be a peace-loving people, not selfish, not always sparring for the fight. Make us peace-loving. Hear our prayer. God, make us considerate, willing to suffer, fair and gentle. Hear our prayer. Make us submissive, teachable, not stubborn and reasonable. Hear our prayer. God, help us to be full of mercy. There are so many of us, God, sitting here right now, and we have never forgiven people. Years have gone by. 
I pray that you'd help them start the journey. Begin to make this a community of forgiveness. Help us in ways we cannot do by our own. And I also pray too, Lord, that you give us a care for the weak and the struggling and help us to sacrificially serve. God, make this church full of mercy. Hear our prayer. God, we pray for good fruit in this church that only can come from heaven. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We can read this stuff up all day, Lord, but if you don't show up and do this, it's not going to happen. Hear our prayer. God, I pray Crothers Creek would be impartial. Drive out prejudice from this church in Jesus' name. Drive out status in this church in Jesus' name. Drive out racism in this church from us in Jesus' name. Hear our prayer. God, make us sincere. Help us to love the Word of God, to know the Word of God, defend the Word of God, and be molded by your truth. Hear our prayer. And lastly, I pray, help us to be peacemakers. God, I, I don't want to fake this like a lot of church circles do. I'm not asking us to deny the tension among us or the absence of conflict. I'm just asking God to make this church a place where we're willing to struggle to find real peace even when it's difficult. Holy Spirit of God, unless you come and do this among us, it will not happen. And so we simply say this day on behalf of our whole church, we're desperate for you, Holy Spirit, to come. Because if you don't, we will never be the church. We will never be marked by heaven. Spirit of God, please, we beg you to come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.